Good Tuesday morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. Look who's here. Welcome hey, back. You let me come back. I let you I'm come stuck. back. You were in Japan. And Paris. And you met Beyonce? Spiritually. <laughs> yes, spiritually, absolutely. We are so happy to have Phil Madeline back with us. Good to have you this week. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, June 6th. This really significant news in Ukraine breaking overnight. Ukraine accusing Russia of blowing up a major dam. You can see the water pouring through a gap in the wall there. Hundreds of people have already been evacuated as flooding hits along the Dnieper River. 80 settlements are in this flood zone, according to the Ukrainian president, and the water could reach a, quote, critical level very soon. And a CNN exclusive flooding at a Mar-a-Lago in the room where surveillance video logs were kept. Now, federal prosecutors say it's suspicious as former President Trump's attorneys meet with the special counsel. And two more former Trump allies set to clash with the former president in the race for the White House. Chris Christie gets ready to announce his run today as Mike Pence files his own paperwork. And the pilot who flew that plane that crashed in Virginia was seen slumped over in his seat by fighter jets that raced to catch up with it. The FAA lost contact with the plane only 15 minutes after it took off from Tennessee and the pilot and three others died when the plane crashed. And a record number of women are working right now. And economists are scratching their heads. Is it inflation, hybrid work opportunities? Well, we've got the answers. CNN This Morning starts right now. Best song ever. But here's where we begin with this breaking news overnight in Ukraine. Ukraine accusing Russian forces of blowing up a critical dam near the front lines of the war in a Russian-controlled area of the Kherson region. This is new video, and it shows an underwater explosion. Look at that. Right near the dam, the surging waters leading to fears of large-scale devastation and the country warning of an environmental disaster. Settlements downstream are flooding. Residents in the danger zone are being urged to evacuate. You can see water creeping into Kherson City. That's what's happening right now there. More than 800 people in the region have already been forced to leave their homes. And officials are warning people, do everything you can to save your life. Ukraine's president holding an emergency meeting with top officials to address this crisis. So let's begin this hour with our Sam Kiley. He is live in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Sam, walk us through how many are in immediate danger. Well, the numbers of people in immediate danger are concentrated really potentially on the Russian-occupied side of the river. This is still Ukrainian territory uh, on the eastern side because the higher ground is to the west. Now, the biggest city downriver from this dam is obviously Kherson City. Local authorities there have begun evacuating uh, significant numbers of people laying on trains, also putting out uh, messages to say to people, get your essential documents, release your pets, get onto high ground. Uh, and get out of the areas likely to be affected because it's not just that the Dnipro River downstream but the rivers that uh, the tributaries to that uh, big water course uh, but uh, so they, the numbers they are yet to release in terms of uh, likely affected because uh, the, the, the flood waters are still uh, draining effectively in that direction it'd be greater numbers uh, will be or better and more accurate numbers will be coming through but there are many many thousands of people likely to be affected on both sides now the 
Ukrainian government accusing the Russians of what they say is ecocide, an environmental catastrophe, as well as a humanitarian disaster. Uh, we've yet to see really convincing evidence one way or the other as to exactly how this dam was breached. There had been some evidence in previous days that because of the uh, Russians controlling the dam were not, were not allowing uh, the water to drain from the lake above, that it was overfilling. It had indeed flooded uh, some villages upstream from there and the road across it had been breached a few days ago. Uh, so this is all in that context, though, uh, an act that uh, ultimately, if it was found to be deliberate, would in many quarters be described uh, as yet another war crime committed by the Russian occupiers uh, here in Ukraine. But the Ukrainian authorities scrambling really hard to try to get people away from those floodwaters. Uh, and above all, the problem is that this is a water source and a source of power for communities on both sides of the river. And whatever happens, they are going to be desperately short of those important humanitarian humanitarian resources. I thought it was interesting that Ukraine's Ministry of Defense said that this was Russia acting in a panic. That's the word they used. How's Russia responding to these accusations? Well, the Russians are saying that um, they didn't blow the bridge, uh, blow the dam, uh, and obviously they're saying they didn't panic. Uh, they, but both sides are involved in an information war. The Ukrainians there, in terms of the Ministry of Defense, are making the point, trying to make the point, that uh, they think the Russians blew this dam in order to flood the uh, valley below, the river valley below, which would make it harder for the Ukrainians to prosecute a cross-river uh, assault. Uh, that has always been, the Dnipro River has always been a formidable natural barrier. Uh, and the Ukrainians have said, if that was their intent, that, that'll be no problem for us. The, the spokeswoman for the Southern Command saying that they have uh, the capacity to uh, get across those river crossings regardless of uh, the level of flooding. Uh, but I think ultimately the, the, there may well be a question here as to whether or not this was uh, something of a kind of predictable accident because mm -hmm. the areas most dangerously affected in many ways are the Russian-occupied areas, including areas where, at least until very recently, they had significant concentrations of artillery that they were using to pound Ukrainian positions, particularly in Kherson city itself. That, that raises a very important question. Uh, we'll get into it all now. Sam, thank you for the reporting on the ground. Joining us now is retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Steve Anderson. And Steve, I want to pick up where Poppy uh, and Sam left off. You know, we're talking about what Ukrainian officials are saying at this point in time, uh, blaming uh, Russia or Russian-occupied forces, uh, saying Russians are panicked. You can't separate this from what we saw over the course of the last 24 hours or so, an uptick in the tempo of potential offensive actions from Ukraine. Do you think these are connected, and how does this affect the battlefield? Well, this probably is connected. I do believe it is an indication that there's some panic in the Russian lines. But, I mean, it's another page out of their playbook. They're trying to wreak havoc. Uh, the, they're trying to hurt the, the civilian population there. Uh, and they're just not going to be successful, I think, in, in degrading the will of the Ukrainian people to, to conduct this fight or to conduct any kind of a river crossing operation that they need down there. My major concern with the blowing up of this dam is the impact on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is upriver from this dam, about 50 miles. And they desperately need cooling water 
in order to cool those six active rea uh, reactors they have mm -hmm. up there. None of them are online right now, but they still need cooling water in order to, you know, to prevent some kind of a catastrophe up there. So that's my big concern is on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And for people who don't know, you are an expert in energy issues and environmental issues. We remember when the power, that power plant, you're talking about the nuclear power plant, was shelled. We saw whole, like bullet holes and casing holes in the roof. Would this be the only water supply to cool that plant? Wouldn't you think that they would have backup options or no? They do have backup options. They have reservoirs up there, but you still need to get fresh water into the reservoirs to circulate the water. Otherwise, the reservoir water will get too hot and you could have some kind of a potential meltdown. So yes, it's, it's very critical that they continue to get fresh water okay. upstream to support these nuclear reactors. Steve, to pull it back a little bit uh, and talk about some of the actions we've seen from Ukrainian forces or appear to be seeing from Ukrainian forces. Now, this has been an expectation that there would be a counteroffensive for months. It has been telegraphed. It has been talked about. It has been predicted. What do you think the misconceptions are right now about what that will actually look like in practice as opposed to kind of the theoretical exercise everybody's been playing? Well, my concern is that they're not really ready. I mean, I know that uh, General Milley and others have said that they are, but I just don't think that they have the firepower that they need to be able to conduct this, uh, this counteroffensive. Remember, we're talking about Russians, 200,000 soldiers that have been dug in now for over a year preparing defensive positions. This is going to be a very difficult fight. Uh, they can't possibly go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these folks. The only way they're going to be able to do anything to be able to conduct a successful counteroffensive is going to have to have, be able to conduct mobile operations, maneuver warfare, the integration of indirect fire, direct fire and aviation. And quite frankly, I just don't think they have the equipment and the logistics to sustain a, a long-term offensive that's going to be required in order to get the Russians out of there. What would they need to be prepared then that they don't have now? They would need... What they don't have is equipment. Okay, remember, we promised them 300 tanks. They've got about 100 right now, we being the U.S. and NATO. Um, they, we promised them 700 infantry fighting vehicles. They got about 300. Uh, we promised them equipment that, that, would, that they could maintain. And essentially what we've done, we've given them a lot of equipment, but we've never provided the repair parts and the maintenance mm. expertise that they need in order to sustain this equipment. My understanding, anecdotally, is less than half of the equipment that we have given the Ukrainians is fully mission capable. Mm. It's not operational. You cannot go into a war fight you know, like this. They need to outnumber, in terms of firepower, the, the, the defending force needs to be outnumbered by the attacker by a ratio of three to one. And I just don't think that they can do that. Their only hope is to be able to conduct offensive maneuver warfare to, to seek some sort of a penetration and then attack from the rear areas and the flanks and come from behind and hope that they can get tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Russians to surrender. That's their only coast. But there's no way they can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Russians. They're dug in. It's too big of an area. The size of Pennsylvania we're talking about in order to try to, uh, to get the Russians out. They just simply can't do it right now. Yeah. Brigadier General Steve Anderson, thanks so much for your expertise. Now to the CNN exclusive reporting. Sources say that a flood flood of a very different type in Mar-a-Lago raised suspicions among federal investigators in the classified documents probe. So we're told that a maintenance worker drained the club's swimming pool back in October. That actually flooded a room where surveillance videos are stored on computer servers. This happened about two months 
after FBI agents executed a search warrant and found hundreds of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and surveillance footage has played a crucial role, of course, in Jack Smith's special counsel probe of these classified documents. And we know that they were moved around uh, multiple times before investigators came. Now, we're told the maintenance worker who drained the pool is the same worker who was spotted on security video moving boxes ahead of the FBI search. Investigators have seized his phone. This new revelation came on the same day that Trump's legal team met with Justice Department officials to complain about the special counsel's probe of Donald Trump's handling of those top-secret documents. Let's bring in CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. And Evan, it's unclear right now if the surveillance video room being flooded was a mistake or intentional. What exactly were prosecutors looking at here? Well, Phil, uh, good morning. The reason why this uh, matters is that, you know, this is a data point, uh, another data point in the uh, overall investigation of obstruction, which is one of the reasons why the former president is in the legal jeopardy that he is. And according to, uh, you know, sources who talked to Caitlin Polans and, and Caitlin Collins, you know, witnesses are being asked by prosecutors uh, about this incident. Uh, it's all about the timing, right? The, uh, the, the first subpoena that comes to uh, to to uh, to the Trump team is in in the early summer. Uh, they provide some documents, and then the FBI goes and does a search in August. And it is after this that they get another subpoena for more surveillance video for for, for them to turn over surveillance video again from Mar-a-Lago. This happens in October during the time again where prosecutors are serving additional subpoenas for surveillance video, and of course another one in late October where they get a preservation order. All of this adds up to uh, the prosecutors trying to understand whether, again, this flooding incident that happened, which uh, affected a room where uh, surveillance uh, logs are being kept, whether this was intentional, whether this was a mistake. Now, uh, some testimony that came in to prosecutors indicated that the IT room uh, was not affected by this. But again, just the idea that this happened in the middle of all that timing is why prosecutors are asking these questions. Okay. Also, uh, a really critical meeting that Trump's legal team had been asking right. for. They wanted to meet with Attorney General Merrick Garland. They didn't get that, but they did meet with Lisa Monaco and other top prosecutors at DOJ about these two federal probes. And Jack Smith came, the special counsel. What do we know? Ye yeah, that was a bit of uh, a bit, bit of a surprise, Poppy. The uh, lawyers arrived. They were there for about an hour and a half. Uh, we were running around trying to figure out where they went. You could see me there in that, uh, looking a little bit goofy, trying to figure out uh, <laughs> when they were leaving the Justice Department. But you know, they had a meeting with uh, the top career official at the Justice Department. Uh, this is all part of what you know, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, is trying to keep this investigation in the hands of the special counsel, trying to make sure that there is no political interference. However, Smith did show up to this meeting. Uh, we know that uh, one of the things that uh, the Trump team wanted to bring up was their belief that there's been prosecutorial misconduct. We don't know right. exactly what that is, but we know that they're complaining that, uh, for, for instance, prosecutors have obtained attorney-client privilege material, uh, stuff that they usually cannot obtain. Mm. We don't know exactly what happens next. We, don't, we do know that they were not told that any charges are imminent. Guys?
Can I just say I love the image of our calm, cool, collected, and quaffed <laughs> colleague Evan Perez sprinting around if Maine Justice trying to find yeah. where these right? lawyers are. If that's you running around I wore looking my Nikes goofy, to work you're, so, you're so calm. There <laughs> <laughs> we see the Trump legal team behind you. That is that's really really interesting, especially given the way that the judge uh, Beryl Howell how, how she had ruled, saying, "Look." You don't have attorney-client privilege here. Yeah. The special counsel can see this stuff because of the crime fraud exception. But we'll see what happens. Thank you, Evan. Appreciate it. Thanks. Good morning. All right. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie set to announce he's running for president today. And he's vowing to take down his former ally, Donald Trump. We'll take you live to New Hampshire next. Also right now, demonstrators in France once again taken to the streets protesting that new increase in the retirement age, that change in the law. So we'll take you to Paris in our next hour. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, just a matter of hours, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to officially jump into the 2024 presidential race. The former Trump ally is set to host a town hall event in the early voting state of New Hampshire tonight. Three sources familiar with his plan say he'll make the big announcement there and take questions from voters in the audience, as one does in New Hampshire. Now, Christie is jumping into an already very crowded field of GOP candidates one day before we expect Vice President Mike Pence to announce his own White House bid. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live outside Manchester, New Hampshire, colloquially known as Match Vegas this morning. Omar, um, I covered... Former Governor Christie's 2016 campaign. We spent a lot of time in New Hampshire, so get comfortable there. It's a wonderful place. Um, why is this time different? What's his theory of the case this time around? Well, look, at this time, and look, I'm not going to pretend I can keep up with Phil Mattingly, but I'm going to do my best this time around. But his case, I think, this time is going to be, he's been candid about it in the past, that he's not just some never-Trumper Republican coming into this. He's framed it in previous town halls as someone who's worked with the former president, had thought he could make him better, and then in Christie's words, former President Trump failed him and the country, and that if he were to get in the race, he would do something directly about it. And we seem to be at this point. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie expected to announce his run for president today. Uh, he's, he's hosting a town hall tonight at St. Anselm College here in, uh, in New Hampshire, where he's expected to make brief remarks and then answer questions from the audience. But the key message, the key moment for tonight will be he will set the tone for what his campaign will be and what we know is a crowded GOP primary field. Yeah, and he hasn't been subtle in the lead up to this moment about what that tone will be. I find it fascinating that he's announcing just the day after we learned in an interview with uh, our colleague Dana Bass that uh, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu will not run. And it's fascinating because of Sununu's reasoning for not running. What, what was it? Well, part of the reasoning is, you know, he would have been joining a growing GOP field. And it's part of why in that answer, he said that he really wants those that are in the race right now to uh, consider the responsibility they have when something or their campaign is not working to get out and get out quickly. He also doesn't believe President Trump is the ticket to a win in November 2024. Take a listen to some of what he told Dan Bash. If Republicans nominate him, then we're saying a, a vote for him in the in the primary is effectively a vote for, for Joe Biden. I mean, that's ultimately how the math will play out. And that said, 
Trump does remain the person to beat in this race. He's polled higher than other candidates at these very early stages. Obviously, a lot can change uh, as people like the soon to be candidate Chris Christie try to break through uh, and make it to the coveted debate stage in August. But the elections in 2024 campaign season, it's well underway. No question about that. Omar Jimenez, great stuff as always. Thanks, buddy. And don't forget, tomorrow, Dana Bash moderates a CNN Republican presidential town hall live from Iowa with former Vice President Mike Pence. It airs at 9 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. All right, next is story. An ongoing feud between neighbors ends with a mother of four shot and killed just feet away from her home. What led to this deadly encounter? We'll explain. And we're learning new details this morning about the moments before a private jet went down in Virginia. These children who lost their mother in cold blood. We need answers. We need an arrest. That is the attorney for a woman shot and killed in Florida by her neighbor. Well, they're demanding an arrest. As you heard, they say that A.J. Owens, a black mother of four young children, died Friday night after a dispute with her neighbor who shot her through a front door. According to a family lawyer, Owens' children were playing outside when the neighbor engaged them and threw a pair of skates at them. The lawyer says she also shouted racial slurs, and when Owens went to confront her, that woman shot and killed her. Carlos Suarez is in Miami following all of this. And there are so many questions this morning, but key for the legal team is why this woman hasn't been arrested. Do we know? Well, Poppy, the sheriff's office is saying that they're looking into whether this shooting was in self-defense, but that's an argument that the victim's family says is just not possible. 35-year-old A.J. Owens, as you said, was killed on Friday north of Orlando in Ocala, Florida. Authorities said that Owens knocked on the door of a neighbor who minutes earlier had an issue with Owens' children that were playing outside. Now, the victim's family said that the woman had previously harassed the children, calling them racial slurs and the N-word. Owens' mother said her daughter wanted to know why the woman kept an iPad that the children left behind and why she threw a pair of skates at them. Here's more of what that mother said. She knocked on Susan's door. A closed, locked door. Door never opened. My daughter My grandchildren's mother was shot and killed. She had no weapon. She posed no imminent threat to anyone. All right, so the sheriff of Marion County said that the two women were yelling at each other through that front door and that authorities haven't made an arrest yet because of Florida's stand-your-ground law, adding that authorities, they're still interviewing other neighbors and Owen's nine-year-old son, who was standing next to his mom when she was shot through that door. Here's a sheriff. And what we have to rule out is whether the deadly force was justified or not before we can even make the arrest. And sometimes it becomes difficult, and it, sometimes it becomes an obstacle, but only a temporary obstacle, because it will be moved, and the final answer will come forward. All right, so the sheriff said that the neighbors have had issues before with at least six calls made to 911 since 2021. The name of that 58-year-old neighbor who shot Owens has not been released.
Okay. Poppy and Phil? Tragic. Uh, Carlos, thank you very much for the reporting. And we're also learning new details this morning about that private jet that crashed into rural Virginia, prompting supersonic fighter jets to respond when the jet was not responding. The FAA says it lost contact with the plane just 15 minutes after it took off from East Tennessee on its way to Long Island, New York. Now, the flight path shows the plane doesn't land at its intended destination, instead turning and heading into restricted airspace over Washington, D.C. F-16 fighter jets tasked with protecting the area scrambled to intercept the plane and tried to get the pilot's attention. National Guard fighter on guard. If you hear this transmission, contact us. Now, source tells CNN the pilot was seen slumped over in his seat, triggering an investigation into a possible loss of cabin pressure as the cause of the crash. Now, we're also learning more about the four victims. The pilot, Jeff Hefner, seen on the right here, the plane's owners, the plane owner's daughter, Adina Azarian, along with her two-year-old daughter and their nanny. The NTSB begins recovery efforts today. New details this morning about how wealthy conservative activists helped Governor Ron DeSantis seal a tight relationship with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas after the Florida governor called Thomas, quote, our greatest living justice. Fascinating reporting ahead. And we're getting new video this morning of that flooding in Kherson after Ukrainian forces accused the Russians of blowing up a critical dam overnight. And more than 800 people in the region have been evacuated so far. We'll take you back to Ukraine ahead. This morning, a lawyer for the GOP mega-donor who provided luxury travel and held private real estate deals with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas offered to meet with Senate Judiciary Committee staff. Now, CNN has obtained a letter to uh, the Judiciary Committee Chairman D Dick Durbin from Harlan Crow's lawyer, Michael Bob. Now, in it, Bob reiterates his concerns that the Judiciary Committee does not actually have the authority to receive information from Crow and urges the committee to, quote, reassess the partisan course it is pursuing. However, Crow ended the letter telling Durbin to, quote, feel free to have his staff contact him with any questions and set up a time to discuss his requests. Now, Durbin has said he believes Crow's information will help the committee's ongoing efforts to craft judicial ethics reform legislation. And staying on the Supreme Court, so we have really fascinating new details from our colleague Joan Biskupik's reporting this morning about how a very wealthy conservative activist may have helped Florida Governor Ron DeSantis seal a tight relationship with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. The activist name, you probably know it, Leonard Leo, has previously advised DeSantis and former President Trump on judicial nominations, including nominations for the Supreme Court. He's also close friends with Justice Thomas, and DeSantis has praised him for his conservative stances on the court, Thomas, that is. Three years ago at Disney World, at an event for the Florida chapter of the conservative group, the Federalist Society, Governor DeSantis had this to say about Justice Thomas. This is a justice that has the courage of his convictions, and he's willing to apply the Constitution, you know, regardless of any criticism uh, that he may face, because I do think he is our greatest living justice. Thank you. Quite a statement after that speech uh, that DeSantis gave, Justice Thomas and Leonard Leo, all three of them went to dinner, sealing a relationship that could help him, DeSantis, in his race for the White House. Our Supreme Court analyst, Joe Muscupic, joins us now. This is so interesting, sort of the world you take us into. And we, we all know how powerful the Federalist Society is, right? And from federal judges all the way up to the Supreme Court. But what can you tell us about sort of what seems to be DeSantis following the path that former President Trump took in 2016 
running on these are the kind of justices I will get on the Supreme Court. Good morning, Poppy and Phil. Yes, you know, Donald Trump even said uh, halfway through his tenure, uh, one of the reasons uh, I became president is because of the Supreme Court. He vowed to appoint conservatives, anti-abortion uh, rights justices, and followed through in his three appointments. And Leonard Leo was one of the uh, men, and they were men, in a small band advising uh, President Trump on who to choose for the Supreme Court. And then Leonard Leo started advising Governor DeSantis when he won uh, the State House down in Florida in 2018. So he's had this relationship between the two men. And, you know, uh, Leonard Leo uh, has a huge, big dollar uh, donor support base. He hasn't said who he's supporting yet in the sprawling GOP primary race, but he has uh, praised Governor DeSantis and, uh, you know, certainly been advising him in uh, his choices down in Florida, Poppy. And Joan, you know, part of the, the fascinating element of this uh, article that you've written, of the, the story that you've got, is it really reveals kind of the tight relationships that have developed between DeSantis, Leonard Leo, and, and Supreme Court Justice Thomas, some of which traces to the 2020 Federalist Society dinner. What happened and how was Leo, I think, is being as his way, the go-between between DeSantis and, and Thomas? Certainly. He's at, Leonard Leo is in the, at the center of so much when it comes to what happens with the judiciary uh, federally and at the state level. He has known Clarence Thomas since 1990 uh, here in Washington, and he has long known uh, Governor DeSantis also since Governor DeSantis was at Harvard Law School and in the Federalist Society. And at this 2020 Florida Federalist Convention, you know, you saw there Governor DeSantis introducing Clarence Thomas, and then afterward they go to this private dinner at the steakhouse. And Leonard Leo told me that, you know, that's where those two men really got talking. But you know, Phil, they already were so aligned. Uh, the kinds of things that Clarence Thomas is known for in the law, you know, anti-gay rights, anti-abortion rights, anti-press rights are the kinds of things that uh, are certainly part of uh, Governor DeSantis's state agenda and now his presidential campaign agenda. So those two men probably would have been in sync anyway, but there was Leonard Leo helping to bring them together in early 2020. It is interesting to watch DeSantis sort of try to out-Trump Trump <laughs> when it comes to the Supreme Court, when yeah. Trump was so successful in getting three new justices on to overturn Roe versus Wade. But the argument we heard DeSantis make when he announced his run was essentially, well, if I win, I could have eight years and I could appoint more justices than Trump with four years. Yeah, it is something to try to out-Trump Trump, but this is what uh, Governor DeSantis is saying. He's saying he would get eight years if he wins, and wins a second term, obviously. And Donald Trump, of course, is limited just to four more terms. And what the governor is saying is that uh, he can take this court that's a six to three conservative dominated court and make it seven to two to have an impact over many, many more decades because he's saying he could get multiple appointments over eight years. Now, who knows? Uh, Knockwood, Poppy, I do not expect any immediate retirements, but this is the governor's pitch to uh, the Republican base for why uh, they should choose him over Donald Trump in this round. Poppy, well, Bill. If, if there are pending retirements, we know who will know about them first. <laughs> Thank you. And who will talk to them? And that is Joan Biskupic. Thank you for the reporting. It's really an interesting read. Everyone should take a look at Joan's piece on CNN.com. All right, now this.
All right, right now, Prince Henry is inside London's High Court for his lawsuit against several British tabloids. The evidence he could share, as he claims, journalists hacked him. And another victory for Vegas, the highlights of Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Final, next. Well, happening this morning, Prince Harry, not Henry, as I said last time around, <laughs> real American of me, is getting his day in court as he testifies in a phone hacking case in London. Now, the Duke of Sussex arrived at court a short time ago, ready to take on the tabloids who've scrutinized so much of his personal life. Let's get right to CNN's Nada Bashir, who is live outside the high court in London. Harry's in court right now. He says some tabloids, quote, have blood on their hands. What else can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely. Prince Harry has been very vocal uh, in the past and even more so now in his witness statement, in his criticism of the tabloid journalists working under the Mirror Group newspapers. He spoke in his witness statement of the impact that their intrusion on his personal life has had, not only on his life, but that of his family, in particular that of his late mother, uh, Princess Diana. Now, this witness statement has detailed... 50 newspaper articles published between the 1990s and 2011, which he says uh, detailed private, intimate information that could have only been known through unlawful information gathering. We're talking about phone hacking, the interception of not only his voicemails, but also that of those around him, including senior members of the royal family. And he also spoke of payments being made, recent revelations of payments being made to private investigators to glean information from not only his activities, but that of his late mother, Princess Diana, something he says makes him feel physically sick. Now, of course, Prince Harry is facing cross-examination over that witness statement. He is amongst more than 100 claimants suing the Mirror Group newspapers uh, over that illegal and unlawful gathering of information through means including uh, phone hacking. And he's spoken about the impact this has had on his life. He spoke about his personal relationships, his circle of friends growing smaller and smaller as a result uh, of the paranoia this caused him while he was growing up and the strain this placed uh, on his relationship. He said he suffered bouts of depression as a result and in fact this played a significant part in his decision to step back as a senior member of the royal family and to relocate his family uh, to Los Angeles. Of course he has been vocal in the past about this and he has spoken about his wish to reform the media landscape particularly when it comes to the activities of the British tabloid press. Phil, copy. Donna Bashir, great reporting. Thanks so much. So the Vegas Golden Knights, I almost said Nuggets. That's a, I mean, nuggets that, are in another series. Team. That's good. That's okay. The Golden Knights. We're good about Thank that. Thank God Phil is here. <laughs> Two wins away from lifting the Stanley Cup after routing the Florida Panthers in last night's game. Two, Koi Wire joins us now. And thank goodness Koi Wire is here. Koi, they are hoping what happens in Vegas happens in Miami too. Ah, uh, yes, that's right, Poppy. And when you said nuggets, you just made me hungry. I started thinking of chicken, <laughs> and even though it's 6 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Someone get Koi some Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Feed me. Uh, the Golden Knights, they've had nine different players scoring goals. In the first two games of their series with the Panthers, the most by any team in NHL history, and this just in, Jonathan Marcheseau is good at hockey. His first of two goals opened the scoring barrage. He now has nine goals in his last nine games, but... This next play sums up the night's night. Captain Mark Stone breaks his stick, and he turns into a Stone Age man searching for his next meal. Pummels a panther, grabs another twig, then he goes on 
to get the assist, feeding Brett Howden for one of his two goals on the night. Vegas eviscerating the Panthers 7-2. to Their combined 12 goals are the most over ever in the first two games of a Stanley Cup final. Hey, Aiden Hill, how was it out there? Probably been the most fun I've ever had playing hockey. Um, just enjoying it, cherishing every day, and, you know, just kind of taking it one day at a time. And, yeah, I'm just kind of living in the moment, and it's been fun. It's uh, been awesome to be a part of this journey with this team. Vegas up 2-0 now as this series goes from the ice in the desert to the ice in South Florida. Game three is Thursday night on our sister network TNT. Not looking good for Florida. 90% of the time, teams with a 2-0 series lead go on to win the Stanley Cup final every time. Look at that pessimism. Just pessimism he's just, from Coy. He's, he's, he's the most just, optimistic guy he's I know. He's hangry. He's hangry. He wants nuggets. Get him nuggets. <laughs> Thank you, <Coy>. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Appreciate <laughs> it. See y'all. All right, coming up ahead, new reporting this morning on how the world's largest tech companies are walking back from policies that are meant to stop misinformation online. Also, watch this police chase in Michigan, okay? Behind that wheel is a 10-year-old. Officials say he was staying with a relative, stole the SUV because he wanted to see his mother. It was a little over an hour away. Several drivers saw the child behind the wheel. They called police. The 10-year-old apparently wouldn't stop for the troopers. So they used OnStar to disable the vehicle. After being pulled over, he tried to run. He was taken into custody. Thank goodness everyone is okay. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's a move that will probably baffle many people. The world's biggest social media platforms are rolling back measures that help combat the spread of misinformation right as we head into the next election cycle. Now, this is according to a new report uh, out this morning from Axios. Platforms like YouTube, Twitter, and Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, are updating their policies and reinstating some previously banned accounts. Now, joining us now with our reporting is CNN senior media analyst and senior media reporter at Axios, Sarah Fisher. Um, Sarah, I feel like it's been trending in this direction over the course of the last several months. And I guess my biggest question is the why. Because you see the political elements of it, the business elements of it. Why is this happening? Yeah, the tech platforms would tell you, Phil, that it's because when they evaluate their policies, they need to balance the protection of their community and their users with also free speech. And right now, they don't think that the risk to real-world harm, meaning, you know, could speech incite violence or protests, et cetera, is as bad as it was when they implemented some of these policies. Now, if you think about it, some of the misinformation policies around things like election denialism really started to increase and increase in enforcement following the January 6th attack. Some of the misinformation policies around vaccines increased around COVID. And so what the tech platforms are saying now is that there isn't as much pressure in terms of making sure that people aren't going to riot in response to these things. And thus, they think they can roll the policies back. Okay, but isn't the whole point of having policies like this to protect against things happening like January 6th, like so many people following lies, believing them, isn't the whole point to protect against that instead of to come in in the aftermath, which is what happened last time? It is. And I asked YouTube about this specifically because YouTube is the one that last week said that they will, moving forward, allow election denialism content back on the platform after previously banning it. And they couldn't provide examples to me, Poppy, of how they're weighing this decision. I asked, is it that you're seeing less of real world violence? Like what caused you to decide that this is okay right now? They couldn't give me that answer. You know, I would argue in terms of being proactive that I agree with the woman I quoted in the piece, Kathleen Hall Jameson, who's the founder of Fact Checked Up. 
www.thepatriotsocialist.org. Really, the way to approach this is not necessarily to take down all speech, but to limit the algorithmic distribution of things that could be misinformation or falsehoods, but also to flood the zone with critical context, meaning provide fact checks alongside misinformation, etc. And one of the challenges is, Poppy, you've seen it. We've been talking about it over the past year. These big tech platforms have had huge amounts of layoffs. And oftentimes, the teams responsible for things like fact-checking, those trust and safety teams have been the ones that have been decimated. Yeah, yeah it's a labor-intensive process. No question. I do want to ask you before we let you go, the New York Times is reporting that Twitter ad sales have fallen by 59% just a year. And the ad sales staff is concerned that advertisers may be turned off by precisely the issues that you're laying out right now. How bad are these numbers? And given some pretty prominent personnel changes over the course of the last couple of weeks, uh, what's the path forward for Twitter? So they're pretty bad, but I also want to put into larger context, the entire ad market is down right now, not down that much, but I think it wouldn't be as bad if we were in a bullish market. What makes this really bad for Twitter is that the same report that the New York Times had shows that they don't foresee it getting any better. You know, a lot of media companies and tech platforms see this declining ad revenue, but project it to increase later on in the third and fourth quarters. That's not the case for Twitter, and that's going to present a huge problem for its incoming CEO, Linda Yaccarino, who started just yesterday at Twitter. But this is her bread and butter. This is what she's great at, is ad sales. So we'll see what happens. Happy first day. Happy first day. Thanks, Sarah. Great reporting. All right, CNN This Morning continues right now. A major dam in the Kherson region was destroyed, threatening the lives of thousands of people. The water from this dam supply the Crimean Peninsula and the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant. In Bakhmut, the Ukrainians really think that they're making gains there. Multiple operations at different locations. Draining of the pool went into a room that stored IT equipment, including some of the surveillance system. Was this on purpose or was this an accident? Also, Donald Trump's lawyers went to the Justice Department and met with special counsel. One last ditch effort to avoid disaster. That already crowded GOP field is getting much more crowded. Don't sleep on Mike Pence, at least as somebody who may rise in the polls. Kamikaze Christie is coming in with one mission. There's no way Chris Christie believes he can be president of the United States. Donald Trump has no chance of winning in November of 2014. An internal FBI document that Republicans say shows these unverified allegations that Joe Biden was involved in some kind of bribery scheme. We will now initiate contempt of Congress hearings. My colleagues wanted to hold the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in contempt for complying with their request. Buckles bounce, you got him. He scores! Oh, what a hit by Kachuk on Eichel! We have to take a punch in the face, you know, to, to win. The guys understand there's, there's going to be a little bit of that. The most fun I've ever had playing hockey. It's been awesome to be a part of this journey with this team. Good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday. Look who we have. Happy you're here, Phil. I'm happy to be here, and I can't wait to dig into what the Vegas Knights were able to do last night. The Golden Nuggets. The Golden Nuggets, as you called them <laughs> earlier, which, by the way, as Carolyn pointed out, uh, Vegas native is actually a Golden Nugget casino in Vegas. So Carolyn's you were totally aligned producer, with where way, you were going. In our ear. Yeah. Prince. Harry, not Henry. We've made a lot of progress in the last hour. We're going to get it right this hour. No, we're really glad you're with us. We do begin with really serious news overseas. Look at this video, dramatic video showing water pouring out of a critical dam. Look at that. 
That is in Ukraine. This dam sits at the front lines of the war in a Russian-controlled area of the Kherson region. Now, Ukraine is blaming Russia, saying that Russian forces blew up this dam, quote, in a panic. The Kremlin, in their words, quote, strongly rejects that accusation, says this is deliberate sabotage from Ukraine. But you see the result of whatever happened here. New video shows fast flowing waters in the Dnipro River as the rising water levels have already forced more than 800 people from their homes and settlements downstream are flooding. People in the danger zone are being warned to, quote, do everything you can to save your life. The destruction sparking fears of large scale devastation and an environmental disaster. Ukrainian President Zelensky holding an emergency meeting about the crisis with top officials in Kyiv. CNN's Sam Kiley joins us now live in Kharkiv, Ukraine, with more. And Sam, what do we know about what actually caused this at this point? We don't know what caused it. Uh, there are claims, as you say in the intro there, Phil, and counterclaims as to uh, whether or not it was blown up. There's no evidence that it was blown up. What there is evidence for over the last few days uh, is uh, since May the 28th, incremental breaches in the dam uh, culminating in the road being washed away across the top of that dam. And now we've got this collapse. Now, the dam is under Russian control, has been uh, for more than a year. The Russians were coming under a lot of uh, pressure and criticism for what was described as artificially increasing the level of the lake behind the dam, actually causing flooding upstream of that dam and dangerous pressure on the dam. And now it seems to have either given way or it was blown up. We will be able to find that out as the evidence emerges. But downriver, of course, there is a catastrophic humanitarian and ecological disaster unfolding with the uh, authorities in Kherson city now laying on trains to evacuate people from the low-lying areas. But I have to say the most dangerously affected areas in terms of flooding will be on the east bank, which is Russian-occupied Ukrainian territory, where uh, certainly up until very recently, the Russians had very substantial artillery and rocket positions that were used to pound the civilian areas just across the river. There are concerns, and we talked about them in the last hour, real concerns about the impact of flooding on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, specifically on the ability to have that water uh, in the reservoirs there to cool it. But the IAEA, which is sort of the international agency overseeing all things nuclear power, came out to sort of try to calm nerves just now. Yes, the IAEA has echoed the views of the uh, Energoatom, which is the nuclear authority here, which is everybody stay calm. The cooling system is capable there to last for many months, according to the IAEA and the Ukrainians. And of course, it can be replenished from the river. The river is still flowing. Uh, and this is because the uh, reactors have all been shut down, bar one, which is in a warm shutdown, and therefore uh, not in any uh, danger necessarily of any kind of meltdown. There are other maintenance issues that over the much longer term will be affected by access to water, but there is no question that in the view of experts, uh, there is no danger whatsoever being posed to the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. That, excuse us, that, if you can hear it, is the uh, air raid alarm here in Kharkiv. Because, of course, the war goes on, notwithstanding this catastrophe in the south. A, a reminder that that is daily life for all of the people living there. Sam Kiley, appreciate the reporting, as always. 
Now to a CNN exclusive, sources say a flood at Mar-a-Lago is raising suspicions in the special counsel's probe of the former president and his handling of top secret documents. Now, we're told a maintenance worker flooded a room where surveillance video was stored while he was draining the club's pool back in October. It happened roughly two months after the FBI executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago and found hundreds of classified records. I've seen sources say it's unclear if the flooding was intentional or by mistake, but it was the same maintenance worker who was spotted on security footage moving boxes before that FBI search. So surveillance video obviously has been a key part of evidence for investigators when it comes to the possibility of obstruction. One of the big questions in this case is whether Trump and his staff tried to hide documents from federal agents who were trying to retrieve them. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Good morning. Morning. Good to see you guys. Welcome. Thank you. Like you can't make this stuff up. A pool, drain, the key room. But, 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 but we shouldn't jump to conclusions here. What are your questions this morning? Yeah, I think if, if I was prosecuting this case, I'd certainly be interested, right? Yeah. The timing is remarkable. This is after there was a subpoena, after there was a search warrant, and now what happens? The room with the servers floods, but... You're not going to get anywhere as a prosecutor with this. It's not going to be usable unless you can prove that there was some intentionality behind this. And so I would start with just basic common sense questions, which is <coughs> starting with why was the pool drained at this point? Is this the regular annual maintenance or was this out of nowhere? Who gave the instruction to drain the pool? And then what I would look for is direct evidence. And prosecutors are doing this. The reporting is that prosecutors have the phones, the cell phones from some of the key players, which you can get. You want to look, is there some order given there? Is there some text or email? So it's interesting, but prosecutors have some work to do if they want to make it usable. Can I ask, when I read the story, kind of to Poppy's point, I didn't know what it meant necessarily, but what I was struck by most is what you just talked about, the fact that they had gotten phones, that they had talked to the people. Mm -hmm. Uh, The scale, I think, and scope of this investigation, which we don't probably know one-tenth of at this point, it seems extraordinarily thorough. I've had the exact same reaction. Even based on what we know, they have run every lead to the ground, as you would ideally in any criminal case. But the reality is you're not going. You're just not going to have the resources. This is different. This is the former president. The stakes are high here. They have spoken to everybody based on a reporting, including the maintenance workers. And we can see why that might be important in the phones. Phones are the best possible source of evidence in the modern day world because everything you do comes through your phone and you can often, we we would just call it dump the phones. You get all the texts, all the emails and and prosecutors are definitely doing that here. How significant is it that not only did Trump's lawyers get that meeting at the Justice Department that they wanted yesterday, okay, Merrick Garland didn't go, they wanted the attorney general, but they got, you know, deputy Lisa Monaco and they got the special counsel. Jack Smith, and it lasted 90 minutes. Very important. So these meetings are quite common. This is what you would expect to happen towards the very end, logically, of a long-term investigation. I've been through many of these meetings. Defense lawyers come in, and they pitch you. They basically say, hey, prosecutors, you have these problems with your case. Here's why it's a bad idea for you to To charge charge my client. They don't work often, but sometimes they can be useful for prosecutors. I've been talked out of very borderline cases on a few instances. By defense counsel? Yeah. I mean, you know, these are real shows. I mean, defense lawyers sometimes come in with slide decks and they give you handouts because they're trying to convince you not to indict. The fact that Jack Smith was there is really important to me because that tells me that this is it, that that was the meeting, because sometimes as a prosecutor, you make the defense lawyers go through, well, you have to start with the guys on the case, then you go to the unit chief. Jack Smith is, is the principal 
here. And I don't think they're likely to give Trump's lawyers a meeting with the attorney general. That's unheard of to have the actual AG. And Jack Smith's going to be the one who has the crucial decision here. This is ending soon. I'm trying to I'm trying yeah. to get in front of this for our reporters who constantly get asked this by their bosses and have no answers because we don't actually know. So go ahead and give so us the answer. I'm asking, specific timeline. I'm asking that exact question phrased with the exact same tone that you did of right. all our reporters too. Like this is ending soon? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Right. But based on my experience, yes, it has to be ending soon. I'm not gonna commit to when soon is, but these meetings with defense lawyers happen at the very end. They seem to be sort of putting the finishing touches on whoever's going into the grand jury. And they have to watch the calendar. We're, we're almost into primary season. Candidates are declaring every day. So I, I do think I'll, I'll commit to soon, but I won't give you a number of days. That's ambiguous enough, I think, to protect all of us. Trying to hedge. All right, buddy. Very Thanks so much. Specific soon. Ellie, thanks. <laughs> thanks, guys. So World War II veterans and dignitaries gathering on hallowed ground in France this morning. This is the anniversary, the 79th anniversary of D-Day. On this day in 1944, an unprecedented 160,000 U.S. and Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy to fight the Nazis. It was the start of France's liberation, creating a path to the end of the war. And our Oren Lieberman joins us again this morning from France. Oren, you are at the American War Cemetery in Normandy. Uh, all of the people there gave the ultimate sacrifice and altered the course of history. It must be pretty remarkable to be there. It is, and it's been fascinating and moving to be here over several days, because up until now, the last few days, the ceremonies were all really a celebration of everything that followed D-Day. There were, frankly, some parties, but you could also feel the gratitude that the French have passed down through the generations. Not today. Today is a memorial. Today is a commemoration of D-Day. Tens of thousands of American troops landed on the beach. Thousands of them, as you can see here behind me, gave their lives a French and an American flag next to every single one of the graves here. And I'll turn to you to why this is here. This is Omaha Beach here behind me, one of the landing sites on D-Day. Many of the men and women coming to pay their respects for what took place here. And it's, it's hard to imagine the scale of it nearly 80 years later of what happened here. We heard from General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We also heard from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. And he said, World War II veterans, he saluted them. He said, they saved freedom. We merely have to defend it. One of the subtexts to all this, and some of the speakers mentioned it, including Austin, was that D-Day was in and of itself a massive counteroffensive that liberated Europe. And as they speak about this, we wait for another counteroffensive in Ukraine. Austin referenced this, making that connection, saying the world was watching everything that happened on D-Day and relied on the U.S. and the troops that uh, came in and liberated Europe then. The world is watching again now, calling and frankly promising to Ukraine that U.S. assistance will continue again as we wait for uh, the counteroffensive here. It's been part of the conversations. It's been part of the speeches. Again, no poppy, bringing it back to why we're here. This is about D-Day and remembering uh, all the troops uh, that gave their lives. And it was as it is now again. It was US, it was Canadians, it was Brits, and it was more. We see those same sort of alliances and partnerships when it comes to China and when it comes to Ukraine. Yeah. Poppy. Especially in this moment, you're so right. 4,414 allied troops confirmed dead on that day. They gave everything. We appreciate you being there very much, Oren. Thank you. Well, the Republican race for president is about to get even more crowded with Chris Christie and Mike Pence preparing to jump in, but another big name has decided to stay out. 
Also right now, demonstrators in France once again taken to the streets to protest. That new retirement law will take you live to Paris a little bit later this hour. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The 2024 GOP field is expanding again. As soon as today, sources tell CNN that former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie plans to announce his candidacy this afternoon. Meantime, former Vice President Mike Pence filed his paperwork yesterday and is set to officially join the GOP field tomorrow, setting up a showdown with his former boss. Now, that will bring the number of Republican challengers hoping to dethrone Trump at the top of the party's ticket to at least eight. Joining us now is Jeff Duncan, Republican and former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia. Um, One of the things... Uh, Jeff, that I've been fascinated by is there are elements of this that feel a lot like 2016, where everybody's kind of getting in, everybody thinks they have a lane, and the former president is still 20, 30 points ahead of everybody else. What's your view right now of what a big field means or doesn't mean? Yeah, look, as, as expected, the field's growing. Um, and uh, you've got all these folks showing up. And I'm one of those Republicans that's actually excited about it. I'm, I'm excited to see quality candidates show up, not be intimidated by Donald Trump or the history that he's bringing with them. Uh, and certainly there, there, there's some, some headwinds to the fact that there's multiple candidates that, that make it easier for Donald Trump's pathway. But ultimately, I think, you know, he, he's either going to step on a mud puddle big enough to, to soil his chances and it gives one of these quality candidates a chance to shine or he's not. Right. And so we've got to make sure that we've got these quality candidates. And certainly there is. I mean, we can go through the list one by one. They all have significant tailwinds behind them. What do you make of Chris Christie's going to make his announcement in New Hampshire today? A lot of Republicans and pundits have been saying he's just there for one reason, and that is to try to bulldoze Trump. But I thought Peggy Noonan wrote a really interesting column in The Wall Street Journal yesterday. And here's what she said about him, about Chris Christie praising him and praising how he governed. She said he's almost Trump's equal in showbiz and his superior in invective so he can do some damage. He has been told that if he takes down the bad guy, he loses. He goes down in the history books. And if he takes down the bad guy, he wins even better. Seen this way, he can't lose. What's the Chris Christie role here? Yeah, look, he's got one of the most important traits for Republicans, and that's he's a fighter. It's just in him. It's in his DNA, and he takes that prosecutor background and he brings it to the stage. Uh, And yeah, he's certainly going to focus his crosshairs on Donald Trump, but he's also got to make sure he highlights the fact he was a conservative governor in a blue state. He was able to win. In, in despite like those 22 those points headings. in 2013. I mean, Say that one more time. I was just saying by a wide margin in 2013 for him. Yeah, it's uh, look, he, he certainly has his head, has has the, the work in front of him. But, you know, we need these quality candidates to show up and he's willing to take the fight. And whether or not he closes the gap and becomes the, the nominee or whether or not he just does a lot of hard work to make somebody else have a viable chance. It's going to take a village to beat Donald Trump. Can I ask kind of along those lines, uh, one kind of top-tier Republican who chose not to get in was New Hampshire Governor Sununu, uh, who announced yesterday to our colleague Dan Abash he wasn't going to run. And he said something that I thought was particularly interesting. I want you to listen to it. Take a listen. The math has shown Donald Trump has no chance of winning in November of 24. He wouldn't even win Georgia. If Republicans nominate him, then we're saying a a vote for him in the the primary is effectively a vote for, for Joe Biden. You're from Georgia. You know the state pretty well. I'm not going to ask you to handicap the state 18 months out, but do you think the general point that Sununu is making there is a valid one? 
Absolutely. I was disappointed yesterday to hear that he wasn't running because he is a quality governor and, and would be a quality candidate for president. But yeah, he's exactly right. The math doesn't work. Donald Trump has a math problem, right? The fact that uh, Brian Kemp won by the margin he won over 50 points over David Perdue, who's essentially Donald Trump's best friend, uh, tells you where Georgians' heads are at. And we're tired of it in Georgia, right? We, we're proud to have a conservative governor making conservative choices for us. We're, we're tired of the charades. And, and the reality is that Donald Trump probably shows up with multiple indictments throughout this process. I mean, we might end this summer with Donald Trump having three separate unique indictments against him. And carrying that weight into a general election is, is just, it's, it's ridiculous to think we would get to that point as Republicans. Let's talk about one of those potential indictments in the state of Georgia, the DA there, Fannie Willis, looking at, we know a little bit more about what she's looking at. We always knew that, that sort of RICO charges could be part of this, but the fact that we've learned in the past few days that her team has sought information from two firms that Trump's team hired to look into potential voter fraud claims, and both of those firms said there's no there there. How does that, what does that indicate to you, if anything, about where her investigation is going? Yeah, those specific details I'm not privy to, but what I will tell you is she continues to work, uh, and we continue to hear buzz all, all across the Atlanta landscape for continuing to, to continue, continue the investigation. But she also, I think, signaled that August is going to be that timeline when, when you know, it appears those indictments are going to come forward. The country's paying attention to Donald Trump being indicted, but Georgia's paying attention to all of the other folks that are involved in this with these potential RICO charges. I mean, you have a current state party chair who's stepping down, that he could be involved and in, in been uh, issued as a target, and others that are in elected office. I mean, this is a big deal in Georgia, and I, I certainly expect to see um, some significant news being made over the summer. Can I just, real quick, before we let you go, you know, the, the indictment in New York was so easily dismissed, I think, by partisans as being a, a political witch hunt or whatever you want to do in the framing, with a lot of work from the Trump team in advance to try to lay that groundwork. They seem to be trying to do the same thing down in Georgia. Do you think that this is a different case in terms of the substance, the scale, and what it may turn out to be? Yeah, I think the New York case versus the, the Fulton County case are apples and oranges, right? I mean, there's just so much significance. Perception-wise, do you think? Yeah, I, I think when you watch the evidence come out around the phone call to Brad Raffensperger, when you watch the evidence come out around all of the conspiracy theories that were just intentionally you know, pushed out into the landscape knowing that they were false, and then looking at this faux electorate slate that showed up with a very intentional plot uh, that that's some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, very different, certainly on the substance, but also politics. Jeff Duncan, thanks so much. For yeah, absolutely. It. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is threatening to hold a contempt vote in the whole House against the FBI Director Christopher Wray. He claims that the Bureau has a document with unverified accusations that President Biden is somehow involved in a bribery scheme when he was vice president. Officials showed that document to the top Republican and Democrat on the Oversight Committee this week. McCarthy, though, basically told Armani Raju, that's not enough. If he doesn't allow every member in the committee to see the documents, they have, we have jurisdiction, they have the right to see it. They're not going to pick one or two people who will contempt. And you bring it to the floor? Yes. How do we do that? I'll bring it. They'll mark it up to the committee. Thank you. Sarah Murray is live in Washington. This has been your reporting. You followed it all along. This document, an FD-1023, I think it's called, but it matters, right? And there are reasons why the FBI doesn't just show it to everyone. 
Yeah, I'm, that's right. I mean, the FBI has basically told this committee and Jamie Raskin, or sorry, James Comer, that, look, you know, this is essentially raw intelligence. This document memorializes an interview we did with a confidential source. We don't just want that out there. It's also uncorroborated information. I mean, one of the striking things coming out of this briefing yesterday was that Comer was saying this is still part of an ongoing investigation, whereas Jamie Raskin was saying, look, my understanding is that these allegations would which surfaced when Bill Barr was attorney general under the Trump administration, were looked at by prosecutors, by the FBI. They could not corroborate them, and they moved on, whereas Comer came away from this believing that there are still portions of this that could be part of the ongoing criminal investigation surrounding Hunter Biden. So from the FBI's perspective, there are a lot of reasons why you wouldn't just want to take this document, which has these unverified allegations, and send a bunch of hard copies of it all over Congress. What would a contempt vote by the full House actually mean for Christopher Wray, and when could it happen? Well, look, no FBI director wants to be held in contempt of Congress. It's an uncomfortable place to be. I mean, practically, this is sort of a slap on the wrist. The FBI feels like moving forward with this is unwarranted. They feel like they've made these accommodations. And Jamie Raskin has made it clear he's going to try to do everything in his power to stop Republicans from moving ahead uh, on this. Take a listen to what he said. I'm just surprised that my colleagues want to try to uh, litigate this in public, much less hold the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in contempt for complying with their request when there was a whole process. That now, Comer says he's going to get the ball rolling on contempt on Thursday, and it's still TBD when we could see a full House vote, Bobby. Well, Sarah Murray, thank you for your reporting on this. All right, a new overnight China blasting the United States for what it calls, quote, blatant military provocation by the U.S. after several close encounters in the South China Sea. How should the U.S. respond? Also, demonstrators in France once again taking to the streets to protest that new now law raising the retirement age. We'll take you there next. New overnight, China describing recent air and sea encounters with the U.S. in the South China Sea as a, quote, blatant military provocation by the United States. Now, this comes after a Chinese warship cut in front of an American vessel in the Taiwan Strait, getting within about 150 yards. And days before that, a Chinese fighter jet made an unsafe maneuver close to a U.S. spy plane. Joining us now, global affairs analyst and former director of communications and spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the United Nations under Ambassador Nikki Haley, Jonathan Wachtel. Jonathan, one of the things that I've been trying to figure out in my reporting in my day job at the White House has been, is there a split between where kind of the, the Chinese Communist Party is in terms of a government entity and the PLA, where the military is, right? Because we've seen some communication conversations between U.S. officials, including in Beijing recently, and then you see where the military is, and they seem to be in a very different place. Is that intentional, or is there a divide there? I mean, you, Phil, have heard of good cop, bad cop. I right. mean, there, there is a play that happens, and I think we do see a stark difference between the two, but, you know, we should be under no false illusion, you know, what happens, action, speaks a lot louder than words. So this confrontation that we had in the seas is quite frightening because of the prospect of a miscalculation and where that can lead. You know, we have to be very cautious about where things are going and, and look at the actions. They, they, they are where you really have to keep your eye on the ball. When you say look at the actions, how do you look at a handshake between U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and his Chinese counterpart at the Security Forum 
um, in Singapore, but not a sit down at all. I mean, the U.S. has been saying, look, that is not even close to what we need. We want this dialogue back open after the whole spy balloon incidents. What does this tell you that this was all we got there? Yeah, I mean, that these are our snubs, right? So again, you know, this is not the type of warm embrace that you want to see between two nations that could have a confrontation very easily, as I mentioned, with the miscalculations. So you really do need to try to avoid this type of tension. And, you know, I think it's commendable that there's an attempt by the U.S. now to try to ease tensions a bit, try to meet. You have the CIA director over in, in China trying mm -hmm. to maintain you know, lines of communication. That stuff is essential. And uh, this public posturing is, is really unhelpful uh, at a time in which you really can run into a difficult, slippery slope. I mean, we had the Cold War in which our sides were not speaking to one another, which, which opened the way for all sorts of difficulties and dangers. And in a very fast-paced world, in a news environment, you know, news organizations covering things and, and some news organizations taking spins, especially government-controlled news agencies, uh, it's, it's really uh, a, an area in which you need to have that communication, you need to have that ability to diffuse tensions rapidly uh, because things can get so out of control. If you were trying to strategize right now from a communications and policy perspective at the White House, the president has made clear he wants to talk to Xi Jinping again. Obviously, the Chinese have not seemed nearly as willing to make that happen. What are you trying to do to lay the groundwork for that next conversation? You continually need to be doing what you're doing. You need to play the friendly role. There's no reason to be, you know, shunning. So no shift, shunning. no move. Look, you have to be, yeah, you know, you have to be strong when something happens that's quite frightening or it's a snub. You, you can't just take it lightly and pretend nothing happened. You have to be firm. But playing a game of, you know, going into your closed quarters and not speaking, that's not going to lead to anything. So there's a need for a channel of communication. You need to be open to it, and you need to keep an eye on it. And when they do something terrible uh, to the Uyghurs or, or some sort of military activity or a spy balloon or whatever it is, these are bad things. And you have to confront it, and you have to speak out about it, and you can't ignore it. And the moment you ignore it, then you're going to end up with worse things going on. Mm -hmm. So this is not the type of you know, situation in which you take your eye off the ball at all. Jonathan Wachtel, thank you very much. We appreciate your perspective. Happening now in France, the 14th day of nationwide protests against that very unpopular pension reform law. It is a last-ditch effort to rally support ahead of a National Assembly debate that is set for Thursday. President Emmanuel Macron raised the retirement age from 62 to 64, forced that measure through, and triggered intense anger across the country. And Melissa Bell is live in Paris with the latest. Do, do they actually have a chance to get this thing overturned? Uh, not really. It looked like they might. The opposition parties were hoping that Thursday, when this gets back to Parliament, there was some procedure through which they could overturn it. In fact, the government preempted it, and what they found is a way around any legislative attempt at blocking this bill. So this will now become law, Poppy, by September, which is partly why this 14th day of protest is much more muted than those we've seen before. For months now, we've been seeing uh, many weeks, certainly every month, 
these very large protests that often turn violent. Today, at this hour, with less than half an hour to go before it starts, uh, far fewer numbers than we've seen in the past. Still, the authorities say they fear that there will be about a thousand radicals amongst them, uh, and they've deployed some 11,000 policemen to the streets. The unions, by the way, Poppy, have also announced that this is likely to be the last day of anger, the main one. Certainly, even they beginning to realize uh, that this is now going to happen, Poppy. Melissa Bell, thank you for the reporting there from the streets of Paris. A new questions in India this morning after a bridge under construction across the Ganges collapsed for the second time in just over a year. Now, the bridge has collapsed twice since that construction began in 2017. It's unclear why the bridge collapsed the first time or if those issues had even been addressed. Now, CNN has not been able to confirm reports of any injuries. A separate suspension bridge collapsed in India last October, killing 135 people. CNN medical teams getting rare on-the-ground access in East Palestine, Ohio, following the toxic train derailment there in February. What CDC investigators found about the dire health impact of that. Plus, the New Jersey attorney charged with several counts of rape and kidnapping. How prosecutors use DNA from a drinking glass to catch him. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, welcome back. That is a live look at a hazy in New York City skyline this morning as smoke from wildfires from Canada blanket cities across the Northeast. Air quality alerts remain in effect in parts of the Northeast and even the Midwest. A cold front will move south over the next few days, pushing that smoke even further south and east throughout the week. Well, today, four months after the catastrophic train derailment, in East Palestine, Ohio, federal health specialists are expected to meet with residents. Now, the face-to-face comes as they've been working to understand the health impact from the more than million pounds of hazardous chemicals that spilled into the soil, spilled into the water, spilled into the air. CNN was given rare access to accompany one of the teams doing that research. Medical correspondent Meg Terrell is here with us now. Meg, at this point, what have they found? Yeah, so they surveyed, they went door to door trying to understand the exposure that people had and the symptoms that they felt afterwards. And what they found in a survey of, you know, more than 700 residents, more than half experienced symptoms. And there are things like headaches, fatigue, coughing, skin rashes and irritation. And a lot of people are experiencing anxiety, which, of course, is no surprise. So what they're trying to figure out is if these symptoms really jive with what they're finding in the tests there. And so far, the testing has not turned up concerned levels of these hazardous chemicals in the air or the soil or the water. Uh, And so they are expected to potentially share some of their updated findings tonight with the residents and people are really wanting answers. And our reporter, Brenda Goodman, who sort of embedded with this team as they were doing this research, heard one of the residents tell them this is scarier than COVID because during COVID, we could at least go in our house and be safe. Now we can't even be safe in our house. One of the things that's so striking about the reporting that you and the medical team have done is that it's actually been very hard to conduct this kind of research in East Palestine, why? Yeah, there are a number of reasons why this has been so difficult. I mean, one is the sort of cocktail of the substances that they're looking for. There are six here, and they could combine in different ways. So trying to uh, test for all of these can be difficult, but also just sort of the nature of the community. A lot of people have left their homes, particularly the ones who may have been hardest you know, hit and yeah. affected health-wise. And also there's not a broad access to internet. So 28% of the people in the county don't have broadband. You know, 6% nationally is the figure, so it's a lot more more than the rest of the country. Can I ask just on that point, though? Because I think if you want to understand what's happening on the ground, if you're one of these research teams, you need access to people, you need uh, 
you want to get the full scope of things. Do they feel like they will ever have the understanding, a full understanding of what happened, what the effects were on people here? It's not clear. You know, it's very difficult to prove these things. But what we are hearing is that it's very important that the testing continues over time. And yeah. of course, that's one of the biggest concerns is what's going to emerge down the line in terms of health problems. You know, when this happened, we talked to Aaron Brockovich, yeah. the real Aaron Brockovich, <laughs> not Julia Roberts. Um, on this program, she was there. And remember, the way that Aaron Brockovich did her work was over time and, yeah. and begging to talk to residents who didn't want to talk mm. to her, who were skeptical of the system, and then really proving everything out. So it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort. Yeah, absolutely. And our reporter, Brenda Goodman, actually broke the story a few months ago that the CDC researchers who were there, some of them experienced symptoms themselves. I remember that. Yeah, yeah while they right. were doing this work. So. Thank you, Meg. Yeah, thank you, yeah. guys. Uh, it's uh, as a parent, I can't even like the terror of not understanding, not knowing. For your kids. Get as many answers as possible. Great reporting, as always, Meg. Appreciate it. So now to this, a New Jersey lawyer accused of raping multiple women 15 years ago in Boston has entered a not guilty plea. Matthew Nilo appeared in a Boston courthouse yesterday. Prosecutors in 2008 and 2007 say that he raped three women and sexually assaulted a fourth. They say investigators used DNA and publicly available genealogy data to track him down. Our Gene Casares is following all of this. Good morning to you, Gene. Apparently, his lawyers say... Um, that they may challenge this DNA evidence. Is that right? Well, it, yes. And this is a fascinating case because it involves genetic genealogy, which is at the forefront of forensics right now. Prosecutors say that this now attorney practicing in a firm back in 2007, 2008, raped three women and tried a sexually assaulted, attempted to rape a fourth. There is a pattern, prosecutors say in all of this, terminal street in the Boston area. Remember that. Three of the four women needed to get somewhere. One needed to get home and thought he was a taxi. Another needed to find her car. He thought She thought she knew him, so she got in his car. But these women got in this perpetrator's car. He took them to Terminal Street, told them he was going to kill them, had a weapon. They had to get out. And according to prosecutors, he raped all three. The fourth one was jogging, attempted to rape her. She fought back, had gloves on, poked him in the eyes. And he ran away. All four women got sexual assault rape kits done at the hospital. All of them. Three of the four had unknown male DNA profiles, couldn't find out who it was. The fourth also was uh, introspective at that point. In 2022, so just last year, genetic genealogy, this is where law enforcement takes unknown DNA they go to a public database where people have signed off knowing that law enforcement may use unknown DNA in that site. They went to families, relatives, anything they could find and looking at location, time, place, anywhere in that area. They came up with Matthew Nilo, but now they have to get Matthew Nilo's DNA to do a comparison. Listen to the prosecutor of how they got who they now have charged his DNA. FBI agents were able to obtain various utensils, utensils and drinking glasses they watched the defendant use at a corporate event. It seems that they obtained DNA evidence without ever obtaining a search warrant. If that turns out to be true, uh, that's an issue that will be pursued vigorously. So obviously this is going to be zealously defended by his attorney. As to that fourth alleged victim, they did more sophisticated testing and they found consistency with the defendant. Okay, Gene, thank you for tracking this story. I know you'll stay on it. 
I had a new from overnight. The Atlanta City Council just voted to approve $31 million toward the construction of a controversial police and fire training facility dubbed Cop City. Even before the meeting that ran more than 16 long hours, hundreds had signed up for public comment, most of them opposed to the plan. Still more people were protesting outside. Residents, conservationists, and activists have fiercely pushed back against the proposed facility, with many protesters charged with domestic terrorism. One demonstrator, Manuel Terran, was also killed during a clearing operation at the site. Well, coming up, a flood at a pool at Mar-a-Lago raising suspicions among prosecutors in Trump's classified documents case. We have CNN exclusive reporting ahead. And a notable milestone, a record share of women are now participating in the workforce. Love this song. We'll tell you why economists say that is. There's more to this story that's ahead. A big milestone for women in the workforce, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, a record share of women are in that are in, quote, prime working age. And that means ranging from their mid-20s to mid-50s are back at work following a huge disappearance from the workforce during the early days of the pandemic. Our chief business correspondent, anchor of Early Start, Christine Romans, is here. I love this story so much. Hey, ladies. Hey. <laughs> but there's more to it. There's a lot going on here when you look behind these numbers, and it, it just shows you how strong the labor market is overall. But when we dig in these numbers, we can see that women, 25 to 54 years old, the largest share of that demographic are working today. There are more women in the workforce uh, than ever before. And that's really incredible. When you look at working mothers, also, last couple of years, 2002, 2003, hitting record highs there in terms of the share of working mothers who are in the workforce. So this shows you that over the course of, you know, from our mother's generations, just how much has changed here. And they're a real uh, force in the labor market, guys. Christine, can I ask you, because the X and Y axis are a little far away from me right now. Okay. Can you remind me, 2020, I felt like they were in a very different place. Yeah. You had words like she session. That's right. I think I pronounced that correctly. What was it like back then? So the she session is over. When you look at what happened here in the early days of COVID, women, for a bunch of reasons, were the ones who left the labor market in droves. You had for women over 20 years old an unemployment rate of 15.4%. For men, it also spiked, but less, less so. A couple of things were happening there. Uh, kids were out of school, right? They were home or doing remote learning. Uh, and women were managing the household and the job during COVID uh, with other family members they were trying to take care of as well. And it was just the breaking point for so many women. So you saw this big disparity uh, during those early days of COVID, but it has completely, re completely reversed now. You said we're managing the household and everything. I feel like many of them still are doing that <laughs> and, and work, et cetera. So what are economists saying? What, what are some of the reasons why so many are back in the workforce now? So there's a huge debate going on, and it's really, really been fascinating to talk to economists and follow through this. Hybrid work might actually be helping here because women are coming back into the labor force and they can manage better doctor's appointments, school things, kids' sports, because they're not in the office nine hours a day, 10 hours a day, every single day of the week. High inflation is another reason that they might be coming into the labor market. And there's a lot of disagreement about this, but it might be they can't afford to be out anymore, right? They're going back in because high inflation is starting to bite uh, the budget. And also the services sector is making this huge comeback. And let me just show you what that looks like. This one I think is a better one. This is how many 
service sector jobs have been added so far this year, 181,000. Compare that with the year before, it was only 77,000. These are more likely to be jobs held by women. Women have a disproportionate share of these leisure and hospitality and service sector jobs. So as that part of the economy comes roaring back, women are coming back to uh, filling those jobs, guys. Christine, can I ask for all the good news, and this is obviously good news, at least on its face. Um, I, my wife works. She d- carries a lot more than I do on a day-to-day basis. Which I, can is, attest, again, I can attest just, to this, Chelsea. <laughs> and it's not even close. Um, and this many kiddos. Yeah, well, she's also like more successful, better looking, all those things. <laughs> However, there are obviously still challenges yeah. right now going forward. What, what are some of them? So some of the concerns are, with hybrid work, are women going to get the face time that they need and the, and the right um, promotion? Right. right. Yeah. Um, so we, we really don't know how the hybrid work thing is going to work out in the very long term. So we're watching very carefully to make sure that there are these rates for promotion and rates for, you know, uh, aspirational roles for women that they're not just um, kind of on, on, on a dead end. Right. And so that's one really interesting thing that human resources managers have been working on, trying to make sure that if you have women coming back into the labor market, that they're coming back and they're on the same track as men or they're on the same track as people who might be working in the office four or five days a week. So that's. That's a that's still a kind of, you know, a, an experiment at this point. I think that's such a good point because like FaceTime, yes. water cooler talk, whatever. A lot of it happens when you're at the office. Absolutely. Not on the Zoom. And it's the same thing for young people. You know how you know when you have young people that are. I mean, a lot of my, you know, formative years. I mean, I was in the office 50 or 60 hours a week in the office, FaceTime, learning things from my managers or little, you know, things in the in the in the hallway or behind yeah. the scenes. Is that something that, that hybrid work is, um, ha- has halted? Yeah. We don't know yet. We'll find out. <laughs> fascinating. Thank yeah. you, Roman. Thanks, Mike. CNN This Morning continues right now. Good morning, everyone. We are glad you are with us. It is 8 a.m. Eastern. Phil Mattingly decided to stay, thank goodness. For the third hour. There was an We're option glad, to no, leave? I didn't no think it was option certain, certain, okay, fine. to leave. We are glad right, well, you are with us, especially for what is happening. Our lead story this morning out of Ukraine. A major disaster is unfolding in Ukraine after a large dam there has been destroyed. The Kremlin is denying accusations that Russian forces blew it up. So we'll take you live to Ukraine where thousands of civilians now are in danger and evacuations are going on. Plus, we've got exclusive CNN reporting. A Mar-a-Lago worker flooded a room that stores surveillance video. And we're now learning that it's raising eyebrows in the special counsel's investigation of classified documents at Donald Trump's club. The Republican race for the presidency about to get more crowded. Chris Christie set to announce that he is running today. And we're expecting Mike Pence to jump in tomorrow. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. So this is where we begin this morning, because what is happening in Ukraine is very, very significant. This is CNN exclusive reporting. We'll get to Ukraine in a moment. But this is where we begin in the United States, because sources say that a Mar-a-Lago maintenance worker flooded a computer server room when surveillance video was stored, where surveillance video was stored when that worker drained the club's pool. This happened in October. And it's just raising a lot of questions in the special counsel's probe of Donald Trump and his handling of classified documents. We are told this is the same maintenance worker who was spotted on surveillance footage moving boxes before the FBI executed a search warrant and found hundreds of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. It's not clear 
if the surveillance video room was flooded intentionally or if this happened by mistake. But our sources are telling us it happened during a string of incidents that federal prosecutors at least find suspicious. Now, it has become very clear surveillance video is a key piece of evidence in the special counsel's probe. Prosecutors have been investigating whether Trump and his staffers tried to hide the classified documents from federal agents. Let's bring in CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. And Evan, prosecutors have been asking questions about this flood, whether the surveillance video was tampered with. What's their end game, as far as you know of right now, on this issue specifically? Well, I think, Phil, this is uh, I, I, one of the data points that prosecutors are working with. Uh, there's off, obviously the moving uh, back and forth of boxes uh, around the time that uh, prosecutors were down there to visit and to try to retrieve some of these documents that were being stored at Mar-a-Lago. And so for prosecutors, you know, they're asking witnesses uh, about this flood, and the timing is the key here. This, uh, of course, came after there was a subpoena for the production of these documents. It came after the FBI did the search in mar Mar-a-Lago in August, uh, and then this happens in October. Uh, also, you know, after uh, prosecutors had sent another subpoena for additional surveillance video, and then they finally sent a, a preservation order uh, at the end of August. Again, all of this uh, driving towards the idea of, of whether anyone else uh, besides uh, the former president, whether uh, those workers who were moving boxes, anybody was involved in trying to obstruct this investigation. Obviously, we don't know uh, whether there's going to be any charges, but uh, what we, what the, the, the picture we're getting certainly is the activity that prosecutors are driving towards is to try to wrap up this investigation. And so trying to get the answer to some of these questions is very key. I will, I will note that, uh, you know, the sources told uh, Caitlin Polans and, and Caitlin Collins that uh, at least uh, in some testimony that prosecutors received, they said that there was no damage that was done to this IT room where some of this stuff happened. Oh, in terms of your point about are we getting to the end of this, what do you know about the meeting that happened yesterday between Trump's legal team and high-ranking officials at the Justice Department, including um, Jack Smith, the special counsel? Right. They wanted a meeting because they said that they believe that there was a, a prosecutorial mis, uh, misconduct. They ended up getting a meeting not with uh, the attorney general, Merrick Garland, or with Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, but they did meet with the top career official at the Justice Department. They also met with Jack Smith, who I don't think they really wanted to see. After all, their complaints are all focused on the conduct of Jack Smith's office. Uh, we, again, we don't know their exact complaints, Poppy and Phil, but we know that prosecutors uh, have obtained uh, material that they're very concerned about, that the Trump team is very concerned about, including things that they believe are, are attorney-client privilege materials that almost never fall into the hands of prosecutors. They did so, of course, because a judge declared that it was something prosecutors needed to see uh, under the crime fraud exception. Evan, thank you for that reporting. Thanks. Sure. Well, also this morning, two more of Donald Trump's former allies are getting ready to take him on in the race for the White House. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to join the race today. Remember, he was an early and very high-profile Trump endorser back in the 2016 race after he dropped out. And Trump's own former Vice President Mike Pence is expected to announce tomorrow after filing his paperwork. Now, joining us right now, Abby Phillips, CNN senior political correspondent and the anchor of Inside Politics Sunday, and Ested Herndon, CNN political analyst and national politics reporter at The New York Times. Um, Abby, I want to apologize to you. 
Apology accepted. When I was in Japan and did your show and you talked to me before the show started and I had just woken up three minutes prior after only having slept like once in the 36 hours, I don't think it was very nice. To, I was like kind of short what? and I apologize. And it's been bothering me and I forgot to text you. And I literally just, I literally just remembered and I was like, oh my God, I forgot to text Abby and apologize for that. On that note, Phil's said, welcome. Phil's capable of being mean. That's what I was no, I sure, yeah. I wasn't like very with it. If short is your mean, I'm here for sure it. It's in the system no problem. Sorry, I, I literally just remembered. You, you are forgiven. Apologize. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> um, and with that, uh, two new entrants into the Republican race. Abby, your sense of what this does, if anything, to a growing dynamic that has been kind of moving in this direction for the last several weeks. It, it's just making the field a lot bigger. I mean, I think that's really mostly what it is. The, the, there's been a big question for me, and I think for a lot of people watching this, how big is it really going to get? And will that, in and of itself, give Donald Trump a, a, a hand up in this race? And I think that we're getting perilously close to that point where uh, you're looking at a, a a size of a sizable field that is pretty similar to the last time around when he uh, utilized the rules of the nominating process on the Republican side that make it really easy for someone like a Donald Trump who's getting 30 percent and above to sweep because it's a winner take all system. Once you uh, get uh, once you once you get a plurality in some of these states, you can take all of the delegates and they keenly understand that. So. While all of these candidates uh, have some rationale in their own minds for running, the real question is going to be down the road, at what point do they get out? Mm -hmm. Because I think it's going to be yeah. one of those situations where they have to just look at the numbers and the math and determine whether it's possible for them to win. Right. I think it's more interesting from a uh, perspective of the primary, what Chris Christie is going to do, because I think that he is a little bit of a totally. X factor in this race. This, yeah. So let's talk about Chris Christie, but to your point about when they get out, I think that was so interesting that Governor Sununu yeah. of New Hampshire, who's yeah. not running, told Dana Bash yesterday, everyone who's in has to be keenly aware of how quickly they get out if the numbers aren't there for them. Chris Christie, yeah. are people underestimating his ability in this? Many not just Republicans, many pundits across the board are saying he's there to bulldoze Trump and that's it. I mean, you, is that dismissing how he ran the state of New Jersey and the margin by which he won? It is somewhat dismissing what is a long record of someone who, I mean, at the original stage of kind of Chris Christie's career, he was seen as someone who could embody a new version of the Republican Party. He was the guy. Party. He, yeah. was the he was guy. the guy. And that has flipped so quickly, partly because Trump has transformed the party so quickly. That's what he's going to be up against. And so I think people are really putting him in a kind of Trump antagonist role in this race. And that's partly because there hasn't really been evidence that he's been able to make kind of inroads among a Republican electorate. I think when we think about the Pences and the Christies, they're all kind of running like ideological test cases in this race. Can you be anti-Trump and still have some, uh, some level of support among Republicans? And for Pence, is that evangelical wing, is that kind of pro-life wing still driving a lot of the Republican activism? He's someone who has a lot of trust among that group of people, but it's not very clear that that means he's going to be prioritized other, over others, particularly when he crossed Trump on things like January 6th and the the rest. And so I do think that these new candidates in the race are testing kind of theories about the electorate, but we don't really have a sense that they're really able to build those type of coalitions. Because I think to Abby's point, this year is really about can you break into that top tier? And so if you're DeSantis, you have to be looking at these type of people getting in the race and saying, are they kind of cobbling up 
two or three percent that I might need to cross Donald Trump's threshold. Because as you as she says, those winner take all states mean that his high floor in that 30s and 40s becomes really, really important. And, in this and here's race. the case for uh, Chris Christie doing something, I think, a little bit different from some of the other candidates. Uh, frankly, Christie has just proven that he's a more dynamic personality, mm -hmm. someone who thinks on his feet pretty quickly. And when you are talking about a Donald Trump, there's really, look at the field, there's really not that many other candidates who could kind of go toe-to-toe toe -to -toe with him in that way. And that will start to matter, especially when, once we're talking about debates, yeah. uh, especially once we're talking about the attention of Republican voters. People discount the degree to which Republican voters like Trump because he is entertaining, he catches their attention, he knows how to suck all the energy out of the room. And for all of the policy differences between all of these candidates, not many of them can really match Trump in that way. And I think that's one of the things that Christie thinks that he can try. I mean, we the other day played a montage of all the times on the debate stage when he went after uh, Marco Rubio, and it was a legendary takedown yeah. in that way. And I think he's, he's kind of banking on a similar ability to really go frontally against Trump and do it in a way that catches people's attention and makes headlines. Uh, if you want to stop Trump, somebody's going to have to do that. Yeah. If I was Trump, I wouldn't want Chris Christie in that debate, but I wouldn't want Chris Christie in that debate if I'm the other candidates yeah, either. That's true. I, I think yeah. that he really provides a kind of wild card factor. He's someone can perform on that big stage. And to the Marco Rubio point, you do not know who is going to be the kind of, uh, 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 you know, opponent on the other side of those attacks. I, I think that's a real X factor. That was a gasp-worthy, like, could not catch my breath <laughs> yeah. watching yeah. that happen in real time. People have forgotten it because of everything that's happened since. Can I just ask, um, if you're Ron DeSantis and you're looking at the people coming into this race... And I'm thinking you've made a really interesting point about on the evangelical side of things, yeah. which is kind of Mike Pence's mm -hmm. lane. DeSantis is making a clear play for them, including in Iowa this week. If you're Ron DeSantis, who are you looking at in the broader field and saying, I need them out quickly? Everyone who's not Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, he needs to go into 2024 as that clear kind of other alternative and really coalesce those other options. I mean, I think somewhat the growing nature of the field is a reflection about a donor class, about a Republican class that feels a little more unsure about Ron DeSantis than they did after the midterms. There was a sense of coordination after the midterms, that this they had chosen the kind of guy who was going to be the alternative here. What that has shifted is allowed people to come back into the race. You have people like Lynn Youngkin openly thinking about it. You have the North Dakota governor. This has opened up partially Doug because Burger. people... Yes. He has a name. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Doug Burdo, who, because partially... Ted knows because, his name. Uh, I'm I'm just, I just, 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 just rolling in real I'm time. Just messing with exactly, him. I know he knows. This is, this is good. I'll get into politics next time. forgotten more about <laughs> politics than I'll ever know. I'm just messing around with I'm not going to say about... Uh, Glenn Youngkin. If I were Ron DeSantis, probably Glenn Youngkin is the only person who could enter the race who would have a shot at somewhat of a lane. I mean, he's a governor. Yeah. He's a culture war guy. But he, independent money, too. Yeah, independent money. But also, I think in some ways, Glenn Youngkin doesn't have the sort of uh, personality problem that Ron DeSantis has. Or Ron DeSantis has to convince people that he's personable and that he can, he can do the glad handing and the retail politics. Mm. Glenn Youngkin doesn't have to do that. So it would be interesting to see it, how those two kind of compete for the same types of voters mm -hmm. if the theory of the case that they have is correct, which is that Republican voters really want, more than anything else, a, a huge culture warrior in this race. And mm -hmm. I think that remains to be seen, too. Mm -hmm.
Can you like move here in New York so we can have you two here with us every day? <laughs> it brings such nice energy. Thank you both. To be can clear, I live here in your house? Can I take your house? Yes, we don't even have a guest. I want to be very abundantly clear about this. And Abby apparently wants a bigger field and more candidates. I feel like we've accomplished a lot. Yes, thank you guys very much. It's good to have you. Uh, tomorrow, our very own Dana Bash moderates a CNN Republican presidential town hall. This is live from Iowa with former Vice President Mike Pence. That starts 9 p.m. Eastern, only right here on CNN. A second flight of carrying migrants from El Paso, Texas, arrived in Sacramento on Monday. Now, according to the state attorney general, the flight was chartered by a company contracted by the state of Florida, causing California's Department of Justice to launch an investigation. The state's attorney general says he does not believe the migrants were fully informed and the relocation was not fully consensual. CNN correspondent Isabel Rosales is live in Atlanta for us. And Isabel, do we know if any other flights carrying migrants are expected at some point in the future? Hey, Phil, good morning to you. So far, California and Sacramento officials have said that they are not aware of any plans for more flights to arrive in California. However, the mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg, says it's a reasonable expectation that these flights will continue, saying that the city is prepared to receive these migrants. Now, CNN reported that back in May, the Florida Division of Emergency Management selected the company Vertol to uh, execute its migrant relocation program, but it also selected two other companies. So far, we've only heard from the Attorney General of California, Vertol, chartering these flights. So it really raises the question, are more flights coming? A political tug of war wages on between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom after a private plane carrying 20 migrants arrived in Sacramento on Monday. This was the second trip this plane had made to Sacramento in recent days. We have been working together over the last 48 plus hours to make sure that first and foremost that the people who are scared, who are vulnerable, who are flown here under some uh, lure of jobs and or services that um, they know that they are safe and that uh, they will be well cared for. According to interviews conducted with the migrants by California's Department of Justice, all migrants arrived in Sacramento with paperwork saying the plane was chartered by a private company based in Florida, Vertol Systems, contracted by Florida's Division of Emergency Management. Individuals approached the migrants speaking in, quote, broken Spanish, asking them to sign forms to take them to Sacramento, but not all understood where they were going or signed the forms. The migrants were initially approached in El Paso, then were transported 100 miles away to an airport in New Mexico and flown to California. So I've said it many times from here, repeatedly uh, from, from this podium, that uh, busing or flying migrants uh, around the country without any coordination with the federal government is dangerous and unacceptable. DeSantis has not commented on the flights, but California officials are accusing him of trying to bolster his campaign for president. What matters is, is the tactic of using the most vulnerable people as your political pawn. Newsom tweeting to DeSantis that he is a, quote, small, pathetic man and suggesting this could constitute kidnapping under California law. We believe the state of Florida is behind this and we are investigating now to see if there are any criminal or civil laws that have been violated. Last fall, DeSantis claimed credit for orchestrating two flights carrying 48 migrants from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard. The Bear County Sheriff's Office is now recommending criminal charges involving those two chartered flights. 
Florida spent over $600,000 on those flights and spent over $1.6 million last year on its migrant flight program. And investigators will be looking very closely, not just at the documents that these migrants were carrying with them, but also their cell phones. We're told by the California Attorney General's office that some of these migrants actually took pictures and videos of their journey, capturing the images of the people who led them to California. Phil. Isabel Rosales, great reporting. Thanks so much. Also Thanks. this new overnight, Ukraine accusing Russia of blowing up a critical dam. The Kremlin is rejecting those accusations, but dramatic drone video shows water gushing through a gap in the wall, forcing hundreds to evacuate. We'll take you live next to Ukraine. Plus, China blames the U.S. for what it calls blatant military provocation after a series of close encounters in the South China Sea. We'll speak with Senator Chris Murphy about all of these developments coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, water pouring out of a critical dam in Ukraine. This dam sits on the front lines of the war in a Russian-controlled area of the Kherson region. Ukraine says it was blown up by Russian forces in what they're calling a, quote, panic. The Kremlin, quote, strongly rejects that accusation, says this is deliberate sabotage from Ukraine. Regardless of what happened, this is the result. The surging waters flowing uh, and flooding towns, forcing more than 800 people from their homes this morning, sparking fears of large-scale devastation and also fears of an environmental disaster. Ukrainian President Zelensky holding an emergency meeting with top officials about this crisis. Sam Kiley is live in Kharkiv, Ukraine with more. Good morning to you, Sam. What can you tell us? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the Ukrainians have not offered any kind of proof at all for this being an explosion that caused the breach in the dam. The dam had been dangerously uh, holding back a very uh, large amount of water in the river and lake above it, uh, and there were deep concerns that it could be breached. And just in the last few days, that indeed happened on a limited level with the road across the top uh, giving way and the uh, waters pouring over the top of the dam. Uh, there have been explosions subsequently to the breach, which may be attributed to the mines and other explosives that the Russian occupiers had left at that location. But nonetheless, 80 uh, settlements and villages, towns and others are, are under threat. Eight have been completely inundated, com according to the Ukrainian authorities. Novakakovka, the town right next door, under Russian control, the Russian authorities have admitted, uh, has been inundated. There is a threat to Kherson city, but the greater threat is actually to the Russian forces who occupy the east side of the bank. That is the location, those are the locations from which they have been using artillery and rockets, even direct fire from tanks to attack Ukrainian civilians and military on the other side of the river. And they are in the lower ground, much more vulnerable to flooding. The key issue then will be whether or not they had pre-warning that this uh, breach in the dam was going to happen or whether they too have been caught up in this. But either way, it's a deep humanitarian disaster for the Ukrainian population on both sides of that river, with the Ukrainian government in Kherson ordering uh, evacuations, offering evacuations rather, evacuation trains, and exhorting people in the low-lying areas to get out of their homes, release their pets, and flee with their essential documents. Sam Kiley, who's been doing great reporting for us on this all morning. Thanks so much. Sam, new this morning, China blaming the U.S. for what it calls, quote, blatant military provocation after recent encounters in the South China Sea. As we have been covering, a Chinese warship cut in front of an American vessel on Saturday. This happened notably in the Taiwan Strait. The Pentagon says the U.S. ship was forced to slow down to avoid a collision.
Uh, and just days ago, a Chinese fighter jet made an unsafe maneuver close to a U.S. spy plane. These near misses underscore why U.S. officials want a high-level dialogue to restart on a military-to-military basis. Here is what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, told CNN in an exclusive interview. And I personally don't think that war between China and the United States is inevitable. Uh, I don't think it's imminent. Uh, but it needs to stay in a, a status of competition. Uh, in order to do that, countries have to talk to each other. And in times of crisis, it's necessary to de-escalate. Joining us now is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He's a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thanks for your time, Senator. Yeah, nice to, nice to meet back up here from our usual places in Washington. Um, I want to play some sound from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who spoke to our colleague Fareed Zakaria uh, this past weekend. President Biden has been talking about a thaw, has repeatedly said not only does he want to speak with Xi Jinping, but that he's going to be speaking with Xi Jinping. This was how uh, Jake framed things. We will, I hope, soon see uh, American officials engaging at senior levels with their Chinese counterparts over the coming months to continue that work. And then at some point, we will see President Biden and President Xi come back together again. I think the question I've had, I think there's a difference between military and military engagement. And obviously, there have been engagements, some on the economic level. We had U.S. officials in Beijing meeting as well. But the question I think has been, um, what is the rationale from your perspective as to why China has not engaged on the military to military side and why Xi has not seemed to show any interest in having a conversation President Biden very much wants? Well, the Chinese explanation for their reluctance to engage their defense ministers relative to sanctions that right. the United States has uh, on China, but it's consistent with this broader decision that she has made to keep engagements at a lower level. Listen, I think he notices the fairly bold steps that the Biden administration along with Congress, have taken um, to try to put the United States in a better position to compete. Um, you know, this isn't the temper tantrums of the Trump administration. This is really strategic thinking and direction on behalf of the administration. For instance, uh, the Congress, with the president's support, passed the CHIPS Act, which seeks to start a new microchip industry in the United States so that we are not dependent on China nor Taiwan. The United States has upsurged military support to Taiwan to make sure that Taiwan can defend themselves in the case of a Chinese invasion. Uh, and obviously that ruffles feathers in Beijing. And I'm sure that China wants to send a message to the United States and to uh, the Biden administration that um, there's some diplomatic price at the very least to pay for the Biden's decision to really get serious about a comprehensive strategy to manage China's rise so that it does hurt U.S. interests. I'm interested then in, um, in your perspective on what, um, what Congressman uh, Mike Turner, who's the chair of the House Intel Committee, had to say on Sunday about where he thinks the administration is falling short vis-a-vis -vis China. Here he was. What we're seeing is an unbelievable aggression by China. If you look at the balloon that flew over the United States, the Chinese police stations, the aggressiveness against our uh, both planes and ships and international water, you get this sort of sense of permissiveness that I think the administration needs to step up and make clear um, that China has identified itself as an adversary and we're going to treat it as such. Is there more the administration could do there? 
Well, I think the administration took some pretty definitive steps, including canceling a high-level trip by the Secretary of State that I think is in part what has aggravated China so that they are responding with this denial of meetings uh, of military leaders. We have also sanctioned innumerable Chinese uh, high-level officials for their conduct in Xinjiang, uh, their cooperation with Russia. And as I mentioned, the Biden administration has a suite of policies that's standing up an ability to combat China's economic and military rise. I understand that there's a lot of Republicans Republicans out there who um, are you know, interested in our entire relationship with China being one of confrontation. Uh, I just don't think that's smart because what we are trying to avoid is a direct military conflict, which would be disastrous for the world, for the United States and for China. And so I think you've got to have a, a policy of strategic competition while you're also pursuing some ability to deconflict and cooperate where we can cooperate. And we shouldn't forget that there are places where we can still work together, whether it's on North Korea or Iran or climate. We can't give up uh, opportunities to try to find common cause where they exist with the Chinese government. Those are limited, but we shouldn't forsake that opportunity. Can I ask one quick one, and then I want to shift over to Ukraine. Do you feel like lifting the sanctions on Secretary Austin's counterpart would be a helpful element? No, I, I think it's an excuse from the Chinese. No, I understand that, but do you feel like that should be on the table for the administration to consider? Uh, no, the Chinese have cooperated with Russia, helped Russia's war in Ukraine, and any country that is assisting in the obliteration of international norms has to pay a price for that. On Ukraine, um, you were also one of the point people in the Senate Democratic Caucus. I think uh, you've been over there constantly yeah. since you've been in uh, the Senate to some degree. What's your sense right now, given what we're seeing uh, at, at the dam, what we're seeing in terms of more kinetic action over the course of the last several days? What do you think is happening on the ground? So I don't have any independent confirmation that this was a Russian operation. It's certainly possible that this was uh, a natural breach, but it certainly would be consistent with the way in which Russia has been operating. They have um, been in panic mode for nearly the entirety of the conflict, launching attacks um, deliberately targeted against civilians and civilian infrastructure as a way to try to sow um, dissent inside the Ukrainian population to try to get them to come to the negotiating table too early. Um, but they are also panicked about this Ukrainian offensive that is readying. I, I don't know um, how successful it will be, but there are all sorts of signs that Ukraine is going to be in a position to take back some significant territory. And that would be, um, at the very least, a devastating public relations blow for Russia. It would really compromise Putin's political position inside the Kremlin. You're seeing him getting, I think, more significant resistance from both left and right. And it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that Putin might be panicking at this moment, um, knowing that he is maybe on the cusp of losing some significant amount of territory. Let's talk about guns, uh, because this has been really your, your mission. Yeah. It is going to be a year on June 25th since you guys got through and President Biden signed that bipartisan gun safety bill. And I remember on that day when the president signed it, he said, God willing, it's going to save a lot of lives. Since then, about 18,000 Americans have been shot and killed. You are about to hold something called the Safer Community Summit this month. As we're seeing a sit-in, by the way, in the Capitol in Colorado yeah. of women specifically asking for Jared Polis, governor there, to ban guns, knowing the unconstitutionality of that. But that is what they're saying is the crisis and we need to address it. How are you addressing it with this summit? 
So people are at wit's end. Uh, I think people are proud that we finally passed uh, legislation that the NRA opposed last year that does make the country safer, but it's just not enough. And so you're going to continue to see this movement grow all over the country and demand that states and the federal government do more. Universal background checks, take these assault weapons off the street. Um, the National Safer Communities Summit happening in Hartford on June 16th is an opportunity for us to assess um, how well are we doing at implementing the law last year. And that law takes guns away from domestic abusers. It makes it harder for young buyers to get assault weapons. It locks up more gun traffickers. It is undeniably saving lives, but it's not a terribly persuasive argument to people when they still see too many people dying. Their kids are still going through active shooter drills. So this summit is also an opportunity to plan for the future, to have all of the anti-gun violence groups, leaders, representatives from the Biden administration, all in one place to say, what's the next step? Um, Because I believe that we have now broken the back of the gun lobby. The movement is getting stronger. We have more Republicans that are willing to support anti-gun violence measures. I think the next five years are going to be a moment of pretty consistent victory for this movement. And so this is an opportunity to help plan for that success. And you have Republicans involved. This this summit will be, I think, mostly members of the advocacy community. Um, And so we're planning for how we're going to continue to bring Republicans to the table. You're going to need to get them there at the table to to pass. And and, and listen, I think what we were trying to do last year was prove to Republicans that they can vote for these measures and not pay an enormous political price. I think we've proved that to our Republican partners from last summer. We appreciate your time. So nice to have you at the table. Thanks, Senator. Good to see you. All right, and this just into CNN. Protesters storming the Olympic headquarters in Paris as demonstrators rally against President Macron's law to raise the retirement age. We'll go there live. Plus, a former FBI agent turned notorious Russian spy has died in prison. His story ahead. Thank you. Welcome back. So this morning, an Oklahoma school board has approved the first publicly funded religious charter school in the nation, A charter school is funded by taxpayers, but it's independently managed. This online Catholic charter school is expected to require more than $23 million in state funding in its first five years. The state's attorney general calls this unconstitutional, but it has the support of the Republican governor. Ed Lavender is live in Dallas with more. Ed, this is so interesting, especially given the direction the Supreme Court has gone on all of this. What can you tell us? Well, you know, everyone uh, watching this closely fully expects this to ultimately end before the U.S. Supreme Court. But on a Monday, a little-known government agency known as the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board, yes, that is a thing, voted 3-2 to two to approve the application for the St. Isidore of Seville Virtual Catholic Charter School, which will be run by the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Uh, the uh, application was approved by a vote of 3-2 to two after a three-hour debate yesterday. Uh, Clearly a lot of intense opinions about all of this. The governor of Oklahoma uh, described this this vote as a win for religious liberty and education freedom. It also has the support of the superintendent of education there in the state who described it as a monumental decision. But it has come under scathing scrutiny from the Oklahoma attorney general, also a Republican, who said in a statement, said, quote, approval of any publicly funded religious school is contrary to Oklahoma law and not in the best 
best interest of taxpayers. It's extremely disappointing that board members violated their oath in order to fund religious schools with tax dollars. With tax dollars, and he goes on to say that this has exposed the state to hefty legal fees here in the future. So, a great deal of controversy swirling around uh, the, the future of this school and what it means for public education in the state of Oklahoma and across the country, Poppy. You know, Ed, you mentioned uh, the inevitability of a legal challenge. Do we have a timeline? Do we have an understanding of when this is going to start moving in the courts? Because, to your point, this is going to end up in one place and one place only, it seems like, the Supreme Court. Yeah. Right. I think everyone uh, agrees that ultimately the fate of the school will be determined in the court system. Uh, right now, the, per the school has been permitted to open in fall of 2024 with about an initial enrollment of 500 students. Uh, but exactly how long it takes for this to move through the court system uh, it isn't clear, but it sounds like those who are opposing uh, the application of this charter school will be moving rather quickly in, in, on, the, on the legal front here. Ed, thank you. It's fascinating. We'll track it. Well, also this morning, a former FBI agent who became one of the most notorious Russian spies in U.S. history has died behind bars. The Federal Bureau of Prisons says workers found Robert Hansen unresponsive at a supermax prison in Colorado. Emergency workers later pronounced him dead. Hansen was 79 years old. Hansen joined the FBI in 1976 and just three years later started spying for the Soviets. Using the alias Ramon Garcia, Hansen accepted more than $1.4 million in cash, cash bank funds, and diamonds from the Soviet Union and Russia. In exchange, he handed over highly classified information, including how the U.S. planned to react to a potential Soviet nuclear attack, should that ever materialize. Now, investigators say he compromised numerous Soviet sources who were providing information to the U.S., some of whom were later executed. So the FBI says that Hansen went undetected for years because of his training, right? They finally did arrest him just before he planned to retire. This was 2001. They caught him making a dead drop. You're seeing this actual video, by the way, February 2001, making a dead drop of some classified documents in a park in Virginia. After he dropped those documents, agents surrounded him and arrested him. He pleaded guilty to 15 counts of espionage and conspiracy. In exchange, prosecutors did not seek the death penalty. <laughs> And a judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Let's bring in our chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, good morning. A reminder for people there who don't remember the specifics. I was one among them of this case. It was huge. And just talk about the significance of this. Well, I mean, if you go through the pantheon of leakers and traitors, um, Robert Hansen is set apart from the rest. Yeah. It's not just that he leaked documents, which puts him in the Edward Snowden class or, uh, or others. It's that he leaked names. Right. And these were names of active Soviet agents who were working for the United States inside the KGB. These were people like uh, Martinov and Motorin who were executed. There was a Soviet general who was imprisoned. There were others who were questioned and tortured and disappeared. Um, the damage to the United States intelligence collection efforts and then the human toll was unparalleled. Why did it take him so long? I, unlike Poppy, I was, I, like, I've been Phil so fascinated this story. by this, the, the books, the movies, everything like also, that. Also, this is in your backyard. It's also very close to where I live. Uh, I try and find bags of cash, as we were talking about, <laughs> uh, at old dead drop sounds very regularly. Why did it take so long to find him and what broke it, broke the case? You know, Hansen was interesting because if you look at the who he was, he was a devout Catholic, six children, career FBI guy, 
showed up to work every day in a black suit with a dark tie and was a career Russian counterintelligence guy. He was not the, the what you were looking for, son of a Chicago cop, law enforcement family. Um, but when you looked you know, behind those layers, he was a guy with a big ego, um, personality issues, felt unappreciated, felt under financial stress all the time, trying to keep up with the cost of the house and the six kids. And he was a guy who just decided, I'm smarter than everybody around me, even if they don't think so. And I can play the FBI man by day. And in my alter ego life, I can be the master spy working for the Russians. And I can conduct this orchestra. And he was right. He, he did it for years. Yeah, for a long period of time. They got it on video. It's still yeah, uh, amazing. It's amazing stuff. John Miller, thanks so much. Thank you, John. So this just into CNN, a new court sketch showing Prince Harry in a London courtroom. He is, of course, suing a major U.S. tabloid claiming that multiple tabloids use illegal methods, including phone hacking, to get access to stories about him. We'll tell you what he told the court. And a new report that Nike co-founder Phil Knight is fighting to buy the NBA's Portland Trailblazers to the tune of $2.2 billion. Our own Prince Harry, Inton, <laughs> is here <laughs> with this morning's number. <laughs> Good one. John, that was so interesting. Nike co-founder Phil Knight has been trying to buy NBA's Portland Trailblazers for more than a year now. But the Wall Street Journal reports he's been boxed out despite offering more than $2 billion for his hometown team. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton, the shoe dog himself. Junior? That's like one of my favorite books. It's a great way. book. It's an amazing um, book. All right, Harry. Hi. What's going on with the morning number today? All right. So this morning's number is... 2.3 billion, billion with a B dollars. That's how much the Portland Trailblazers are valued at. That is up over 3,000% from the 70 million Paul Allen paid for them back in 1988. And I became very interested in how much major league teams' valuations have gone up mm -hmm. over the last, say, 30 years. Look at this. The NFL franchises, they're up nearly 3,000%. NBA franchises, up over 2,000%. MLB franchises, up about... 2,000%, now all worth between 2.3 billion and 4.5 billion on average. And why are these teams so valuable? Well, they're limited teams, so owning can be a wealth symbol. And of course, sports teams are some of the rare events millions of people watch uh, in this era. I'm, just, I'm happy that rich people are getting richer. And when it, my, like very rich people are getting way richer. Um, one of those people, you mentioned him, Paul Allen. Sports isn't just his only investment. It's paid off since 1988, is it? No, look at the Microsoft stock. It's up, get this, about 130,000%. And that is part of the larger stock boom with the NASDAQ 100 up about 8,000% since 1988, well beating the S&P 500 baseline. 1988. Oh, we love you, Harry. Thank Old you soul. very much. Your stock Old is always soul. up, Harry. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> this is for you to read. Oh, I got it. I'm on it. It's about Harry. Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs. They visited the White House. See what happened when Travis Kelsey tried to take the mic. Oh, it's very good I didn't have to read that because I would have said Travis For your morning moment, and this is a fun one, President Biden welcoming Super Bowl champions the Kansas City Chiefs to the White House on Monday after the team gifted Biden a personalized number 46 jersey. The Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey decided to seize the moment and try to steal the mic. That is when the quarterback Patrick Mahomes stepped in. 
So I've been waiting for this. Moment. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> now, despite the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl three times, this visit marked the first time that the franchise met with the sitting president and toured the White House. The team's first visit was canceled in 2020 due to the pandemic. It's just a great team. Apparently, this happens all the time. Yes. With the jersey so glad I have a Chief White House correspondent it's next to me. That's what I bring to the table. <laughs> we will see you here tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us. CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.